0: Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 7. I just appreciate that good song. I couldn't help it. Well, I had to say something about that good good song and the message of it. Luke chapter number 7 tonight. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Luke chapter number 7. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. When he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation and hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. For I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in the house of God. Lord, my heart's already been encouraged. I just pray that tonight you would have perfect liberty in this service. I pray that I'd not grieve the Holy Ghost. And I pray that no one here would grieve him but that we'd have our hearts open and set upon You and willing to hear and heed the Word of God. Lord, I hope that the reason we've come tonight is we need to hear from heaven. And Lord, if it's not, adjust our perspective and do a supernatural work in our hearts. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice a phrase in verse number 9. The Lord turns this man about and makes this comment... About his faith. He said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. You know, I grew up in a little Christian school just down the road, not very far, and I don't know, I don't know if schools still do these sorts of things. It may have been outlawed with, you know, things like laughing and having fun and being a child, but, uh, when I was in high school, we used to have a thing, we we did yearbooks, And in our yearbooks, we had what we called superlatives. Does anybody know what a superlative is? You slip slip a hand up. That's all right. It won't hurt you. Superlatives. So we'd have superlatives every year in, in the yearbook, and the students would vote on these superlatives. And a superlative is essentially an exceeding or a maximum declaration of the competency or capability or caliber of a certain thing. And so, here's what they'd sound like. You may not even know they were called that, but we'd have in our yearbook things like most likely to succeed. And and the kids would vote on most likely to succeed. And one of the students would win. We'd have most popular things like that in in the yearbook and and best looking and and things of that sort that would be these superlatives that, that people would set forth saying this person is better than anybody else in this respect. I can tell you from personal experience that it's more satisfying to win most popular than it is to win best looking. But neither of them compare to winning smartest or most likely to succeed, just from personal experience. Um, but my favorite probably that I ever won was most humble. Amen. That was really a blessing. I really, I cherish, I keep the trophy on my mantle at home. Just sit and look at it. Superlatives, the best of the best, the Lord turns this man around, looks at the company that's gathered and proclaims this man to have a superlative faith. He says, I, with eternal eye, can look across the scope of the landscape of Israel and I see not only men's behavior and and men's conduct, but I can look within human heart. And he says, I can scan from coast to coast, from the north to the south, the east to the west, and I have not found a superlative faith, a greater faith than the one that has just been exhibited by this centurion. What a remarkable statement that is. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I fail in the matter of faith sometimes. I feel like oftentimes I struggle to trust the Lord, or I figure that sometimes I'm trusting Him, but the character of my faith has been meddled and, and, and modeled with certain things that, that somehow weaken it. And when I read about this man's faith, it encourages me and challenges and charges me to have a faith similar to this man. I want to preach to you on a superlative faith tonight. And I want us to look at five things that I think are highlighted in this passage that speak to the tremendous character of this man's faith. You know, you can have different categories or calibers of faith. You can have a strong faith. You can have a weak faith. You can have a pure faith. You can have a polluted faith. You can have a lofty faith. You can have a low faith in the way that you interact with the Lord. But I think when we meet this man and look at his faith, we learn the kind of faith that God values. I want you to notice five things in this passage, and then we'll dismiss for the evening. Look at, with me in uh, the, the, our text. Now, I want you to notice how the Lord describes this man's faith. The Bible says this in verse number six, then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and unto another, Come, and he cometh and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth. It was this description or expression of the man's faith that prompted the Lord's response. Let me say number one tonight, when we look at how this man describes his own faith, and we look at how it is displayed, I believe his faith was superlative in its concept. He say, preacher, what do you mean by that? How he viewed faith in the first place. Can I tell you, there's some funny ideas about what faith is in the world around us. We made note of this just the other day in the preaching, but the prosperity gospel preachers would declare faith to be the proclaiming to God the terms of his working and his dealing. But you know, that's not the kind of faith that's found in the word of God. Some would claim faith is merely a cultural construct, that it is merely a a part of our identity and personality and preferences, and yet we find in the Word of God that biblical faith is not constrained to one race or to one culture or to one class or category of individual. So what is his concept of faith? I would make two statements about it and then move on. Number one, I would say this, his belief in faith was that faith was sufficient. This man approaches unto the Lord or sends word to the Lord. And we'll say a word about that here in a moment. And sends with it nothing else. Now, I don't know about you, but probably if I felt like something else was needed to procure the answer that I was desiring from the Lord, and particularly him being a man of wealth and of means, he built a synagogue there in the nation. He is a wealthy man. He is a prestigious man. He is a powerful man with many people at his disposal. If he thought that something other than faith was needed, then undoubtedly he would have sent something other than faith with it. But he sends word and lets the Lord know, Lord, I'm looking to you and you alone, and nothing else can avail. Sola fide, faith alone. Can I say this, that God doesn't need any help in the matter of exercising and executing his work in this world. To our knowledge, this man is not a keeper of the law. We have no reason to believe he is. It's interesting that when the Jewish elders come and plead his case to Jesus, they do not make any comment concerning any sort of religious observance on his part. They say He loveth the nation. They say He built us a synagogue. But undoubtedly, if He was some sort of proselyte to the Jewish faith, if He was a man that came and and had some semblance of religious life or religious worship, then no doubt they would have invoked that before the Lord and said, now, Lord, you need to do this for this fellow. They would have said it just like East Tennessee folks do, that He's a good old boy, that He's a good person, And that you need to do something for him. As they describe that, no doubt, had they been able to point to any religiosity, they would have done so. But they could not point to anything. This man is a centurion. This man is undoubtedly a Roman. This man is a Gentile. He's an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. He is a stranger from the covenants of God. And yet, this is the man that Christ turns around and says, his faith is of higher caliber than any person in this nation. He had a, he had a, a, a higher caliber faith than the high priest. He had a higher caliber faith than the lower priest or lesser priest. He had a higher caliber faith than the rabbi that taught in the synagogue that he built. Now, you say, well, preacher, what are you driving at? Are you suggesting that a man doesn't need to be religious, that we have no use for church and the things of God? No, far from it. I'm saying this, that getting God's intention is not a matter of trying to out-spiritual the next person. Faith alone is sufficient. Faith alone is sufficient. Faith alone is sufficient. It's never been by works, and by the way, that's the works of commandment and the works of conscience. See, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. The Jews have the law of commandment, but uh, the Bible makes clear in the book of Romans that the Gentiles had a law as well, and it was the law of conscience. And there are a great many people in East Tennessee trying to get to heaven by works because they say, well, I feel like I'm a pretty good person what do they mean? They mean I've done what my conscience has told me to do. I am a subject to the law of my conscience the same way that Jews both then and now would look and say, well, I'm a keeper of the law and that's sufficient. I'm a keeper of the law and that is what is wholly necessary. Hey, Paul dealt with this in the book of Galatians. He made abundantly clear. Listen, by the works of, of the law shall no flesh be justified. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Uh, That didn't begin, you say, well, preacher, that began post-Calvary. No, it didn't begin post-Calvary because uh, Paul, when he spoke about the uh, believer being justified by faith, he invoked two different examples. He invoked Abraham, who was before the law, and David, who was within the law. And both of them, he said, had righteousness imputed unto them because they believed the Lord. Not because of the works of righteousness that they had done according to the law. And by the way, I would say this. If a man had to keep the law to be saved, Abraham was in a mess. Because there was no law whenever righteousness was imputed unto him. And let me say this. If a man had to keep the law to be saved, David was in a worse mess. Because he wasn't just lawless. He was a lawbreaker. On multiple accounts, I mean, you understand one of the things that scandalized the Pharisees during the ministry of the Lord Jesus was that he invoked David and his companions eating the showbread that had been offered to them by Abiathar in the Old Testament. He pointed over and over and over again to the fact that it's not that uh, that uh, man is subject unto the Sabbath, but Sabbath unto the man. And he points to the fact that the Sabbath was never given to justify a man. It was given uh, so that he might uh, have a period of rest, a period of respite. And it was given that it might be a blessing. Uh, Part of the reason it was, "Mm, I've got a message I was going to preach now. Part of the reason it became such a burden in the New Testament is because man had corrupted and warped the Sabbath fo- so far from what Moses had carried down off Sinai in the first place. Amen. You understand that Judaism and how it looks during the ministry of the Lord Jesus is nothing like what Moses carried off Sinai. Amen. Nothing like. Uh, if it was, they wouldn't have nailed him to a cross. Amen. Uh, they had so far corrupted and polluted Uh, Judaism for what it had originally been and intended and designed to be. You say, Preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, when this man comes to Jesus, he doesn't come with his faith and a big basket of credentials. He comes to Jesus with only his faith. Evidently, he felt like faith was all that was necessary. He didn't bring the fruit of the labor of his hands. He didn't bring the offering of Cain unto Jesus and try to secure some advantage and some preference and some blessing. But he comes in his faith and his faith alone. He say, wait a minute, preacher. The Bible describes how they mentioned that he was worthy because he had built him a synagogue. No, the Jewish elders said that. He didn't say that. He said, I wasn't worthy to come unto you. He didn't come saying, hey, let me show you all the philanthropic things I've done for the nation. He instead came and said, I'm not worthy of even being in your presence evidently faith was sufficient in his mind. I think it was superlative in his concept. To him, faith was sufficient. But number two, faith was transcendent. Now, you say, preacher, what do you mean by that transcendent? Well, something that transcends is something that reaches a dimension or a level that other things cannot reach. It rises above or it reaches beyond. It's interesting, I made note of this a moment ago, but there are uh, two records of this miracle in the Gospels. One is here in Luke chapter number 7, the other is in Matthew chapter number 8. And it's interesting to note the seeming discrepancies betwixt. Now, let me be abundantly clear, I believe my King James Bible is perfect. I believe it's perfect because I believe God has done a, a miraculous work of preservation. I believe that he has preserved perfectly the inspiration of the Word of God. I remember hearing a preacher say years ago, talking about preservation. He said, uh, he was talking about his hillbilly up in Kentucky, and, he, and him and his family, they, they would can uh, different stuff from their garden. And I guess we're hillbillies from Tennessee. We can stuff from our garden. But he was talking about, if, he said, if you can green beans, and you open it up a year from now, and it's something other than green beans, you didn't preserve it right. If you open it up, and, and it's no longer edible... If you open it up and it is corrupted, then you haven't done a work of preservation. I would say this, that inspiration without preservation was foolhardy. And preservation without inspiration is something that is that is absurd and unnecessary. You say, preacher, what do you believe? Well, I believe God inspired his word when he gave it. And I believe he preserved that inspiration perfectly. I believe so much so that I can hold my Bible in my hand and not wonder or look for some scholar to tell me what I should believe. I can read it and believe it and understand the truth and the reality of it. And so when we read these two different accounts of Scripture, we'll find that there seems to be a discrepancy. But I think if we look a little closer, I think we'll understand what's being said here. Now, in our text, this is how it's described. It says, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he, the centurion, heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. They, When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Now, plain language of your King James Bible, it says abundantly clear that he did not go to the man. But instead, he sent the Jewish elders unto the man. And then when Jesus comes to the house, before he gets to the house, the centurion sends servants to Jesus and tells him that he's not worthy to come under his roof. Or that, that the centurion's not worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. Now, it seems perfectly clear to me uh, that this man went at least uh, at this moment without seeing the face of Jesus. And yet, listen to Matthew's account. In Matthew's account, it says this, when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, There came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. Now, I don't know about you, that looks like a contradiction, prima facie, just on the face of it. But then we realize when we look a little closer, the Holy Ghost is teaching a precious truth about this man's faith. You remember that whenever the Lord goes to come to the man's house, here's what the man says. He says, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But if you'll send word, then it'll be like you were here and the work will have been done. He says, I don't need your physical presence. I just need the word of your power. And if you'll speak the word, then it will do the work and it will be representative of your presence in the house with my sick servant. So why does Matthew... The same Holy Ghost that wrote Luke wrote Matthew. Why does He say the man was there? Here's why. It is revealing something about His concept of faith. He was not there. But when He sent people in His stead, they spoke as though He was there. And by His faith... Hey, I'll just say it this way. I'll just go ahead and tell you. Here's why I believe His faith is transcendent. Because He believed that by faith He could appear before the Savior. He believed that though He was not worthy to be there... That by faith he could stand in a place he was not worthy to stand in. That by faith he could transcend to a place that he was not worthy to stand in. What a beautiful truth this is about faith. For by faith we stand places that we could never stand on our own. (laughs) Hey, we're saved by grace through faith, by grace through faith, by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, by grace through faith, and not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his own mercy hath he saved us. By, by grace and, and through faith we stand, and by faith we stand. And we have no right to stand in the presence of God. We have no ability to stand in the presence of God. And yet we stand there. How do we do that? We stand there by faith. Faith is transcendent. He believed that by faith he could appear before the Savior. But number two, he believed that by faith he could obtain help from the Savior. In other words, here's what he believed. I'm not worthy to go to him, but by faith I can send word and he'll hear me. And I'm not worthy that he should come to me, but by faith he can send word and he can work a miracle. In other words, he understood fundamentally that faith was the conduit through which a man had both a relationship with God and a response from God. He understood that if he was to have a relationship with the Savior, be it ever so short in this passage, it would only be accomplished by and through faith. He exercised faith when he sent word that Jesus might work a miracle. And the Lord, when he sent word back, the man received it by faith and took it as the very truth in fact, which of course it was. I would say this, it was superlative in its concept. I don't have time to do it, but just stop and compare it to the paltry faith that was so prevalent in Israel in that day. Faith that was wrapped up in, in, in the washing of pots and cups faith that was wrapped up in the ceremonial cleansing, faith that was wrapped up in the, in the stringent observance of, uh, of a law that had been so twisted that it, it didn't even resemble what God had given. And that's what most men's faith was, was rested in. Hey, this is why Paul said, it's good that the heart be established by grace and not by meats if your relationship with god is predicated on whatever works that you have done or works you are hoping are sufficient there's two problems with that one uh, for every time that you do a good work invariably you're going to do a lot of bad works but number 2 you will find that in life to be a your your fear and your flesh will make that a consistently moving target in your life it's interesting you look at the charismatic movement they believe men can lose their salvation at least a great many of them do And you would think that would make a man walk more circumspectly. And yet there's probably no more loose, lewd, lurid, and carnal denomination, if we want to use that terminology, movement, than the modern charismatic movement. Now, why is that? Well, it was a moving target and they finally just threw their hands up and said, well, I guess can't nobody really be holy. We'll just call our movement holiness. That'll be enough. (laughs) In other words, that moving target, it does two things. One, it disparages the soul. But two, it disengages the believer with true holiness. Because eventually we just say, well, what's the point? There's no way I could ever meet that standard. That's true. You can't meet God's standard of righteousness. But by faith, we can receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I think it's superlative in its concept. Let me say number two, it's superlative in its object. What he was putting his faith in was better than what everybody else was putting their faith in. You know, faith really fundamentally is about the object. Uh, we're getting into political season uh, it started i don't know 100 years ago and it's still today you'll start getting the flyers in your mail people they love you you know they're here for you they support you i don't know who you are but you know they they love you they're supporting you and uh, it's political season and one of the things you'll find is that people become real religious around political season every politician's a person of faith Don't matter who they are. I mean, I'm talking about the most disgusting, lowest life form to slither out of the political swamp will proclaim they are a person of faith. And you know what? They are. Because functionally, we all have some sort and semblance of faith. Every single one of us. It's not faith in itself that is so noble. It's the object of the faith. That's what changes a man's life. The Buddhists have faith. The Mormons have faith. The JWs have faith. they got more faith than most Baptists. But what is their faith vested in? What does it rest in? What is the object of their faith? Notice the two things he was trusting in. Number one, he was trusting in the testimony of Christ's works. The Bible says this, that the reason he sent word in verse 3, when he heard of Jesus. What an amazing short little blurb phrase that is. He just heard of Jesus. wonder what you'd hear of Jesus at that time. Particularly if your perspective was not poisoned by the prevailing religious mind frame of the day. You're just a centurion. And you have all these soldiers under your command. So you hear what the common people are saying. And you hear them talk about how one day this Jesus man, he was out and there was thousands of people there. And nobody had any food and he just started breaking bread and fish and fed all of them. And you hear another soldier and he talks about a day that he was patrolling and, and went through and, and passed by the pool of Siloam and there was a old beggar there that had, been, that had been crippled for his entire life and he saw Jesus just speak to him and the man rose up and walked. Describe how the man was found who was blind from his birth and a new thing was done. In your Bible, no one had ever been healed blind from birth. But Jesus Pierced through the darkness into the heart of a man that didn't know anything but darkness, <laughs> and spoke life and light into his vision. What an amazing thing! Hear about a uh, young uh, about a woman who's who's uh, burying a child. Parents ought to never have to bury their children, and they're carrying the funeral beer. And and the Lord Jesus, He just a, a beer is like a procession. That I I got to make clear to our people. Amen. It it wasn't no Irish wake, amen? B-I-E-R, the funeral beer. And and they're carrying it through, and the Lord Jesus, he's just walking by, and he just says, "Uh, excuse me, can you hold on a second? And all of a sudden, the boy just stands up. See, he had heard all these things of Jesus. And here is the simple thing that he said to himself. If he could do it for them, I bet he'd do it for my servant. It was rooted not in his own ability to procure or to change anything. You know, it's interesting. It's fascinating. This is a man, he describes his faith and he says, I tell people to go and they go. I uh, tell people to come here and they come here. The man that's sick is his servant. And here's what he's realized. He's realized that something, he's faced a problem that is beyond the scope of the authority of his own life and his own word. He can't say get better and the man get better. But Jesus can. And he knows he kings. he's seen him work that miracle in other people's lives. I will tell you this, that your life will be far better if you will base it off of the precedent, uh, precedent of God's goodness and God's power. I think, I think it was better because its object was the testimony of his works. But number two, its object was the authority of his word. He uses that word authority. And I think really we get to the very heart of what Christ was highlighting in this man's faith. That he understood that Christ, it was unnecessary for him to appear, to show, to, to, to go through any of the, uh, of, of the showy process or procedure, that none of that was what made the difference. The man understood fundamentally that authority is expressed in the word, will, and wishes of the person that has the authority. The reason he says this is because he doesn't believe this man Jesus is just some traveling evangelist. He doesn't believe he's just some vagabond Jewish sorcerer moving through the countryside. He believes this man has an authority superlative to all other authorities. You see, here's what makes your faith superlative. is when you place it in a superlative God. It's not that your faith has to be. And I do believe faith can be strengthened. I do believe faith can be cultivated. But understand that the the, the potential of your faith is, is not so much vested in, in your willingness or ability to trust God without anxiety and without fear, so much as it is the character and personhood and power of the God in whom you are placing it. Amen. This man's faith was not great because he was religious. This man's faith was not great because he was righteous. We don't necessarily know that he was. This man's faith was not great because he was resolved. This man's faith was great because he put it in the greatest person that has ever existed. And believed his authority to be sufficient. You see, faith finds its life, its vigor, and its its steadfastness in the authority of God's Word. This is something that many modern day Christian movements lose and miss and never even miss it once they've missed it. Faith is the outpouring of the authority of God's Word and His station as Creator. He has the authority. You understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God. We under By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which appear were made of things which do not appear. I mean, you understand that when God created this world, He didn't do it by going. He spoke. He said, let there be. And molecules form. He said, let there be. And atoms began to form. He said, let there be. And all of creation said, yes, sir, because you're our creator. That's the authority of God's word. The Word of God, and I want to be very clear in what I'm about to say, because the the prosperity preachers take this and twist this. It is not you speaking things that makes them reality. It is God speaking things that makes them reality. It's not your will and your wishes and your ambitions and your desires, but it is God dictating and declaring things to be so that make things so. So you can have faith in your own Word and that and... I don't know, 950 will get you a cup of coffee. Or you can place your faith in the Word of God where there is real potency, authority, and currency. This man was smart. He understood that if he could just get Christ to speak a word, that's all it'd take. That's all it'd take. If he could just get him to speak a word, that's all it would take. We could say it this way. He understood if he could just get God's Word on the matter, then that's all that was needed. And you know, if you can just get God's Word on the matter, that's all that's needed. I think it was superlative in its object. I think, number three, it was superlative in its extent. I've got to hurry. But I want you to notice two things that that describe or display the extent of this man's faith. So we know the kind of faith he had, but how much faith did he have? I would say this, number one, he had faith that Christ had power over distances. He says, you don't have to come to my house. You can speak a word and it will happen. Now, before you say, well, preacher, yeah, that's cool. I guess that's great. But now we got cell phones and all. (laughs) I would remind you of what this represented to this man. It represented Christ's mastery over creation. I don't even know if he understood the depth of what he's saying here. But he was confessing Christ as creator. He was saying, you're not merely human. You are not constrained by geographical boundaries and locations. But you are able to be everywhere at every moment all at once. (laughs) It's amazing. I don't know if you know this, but in your Bible, uh, did you know there's only one time that the word eternity is found in your Bible? Some of y'all got real quiet getting your phones out and checking the preacher. Go ahead. You'll only find it one time. Now, you'll find the word everlasting a lot and eternal a lot. But you'll only find the word eternity one time. By the way, it's interesting to think about the distinction between eternal and eternity. See, I can wrap my mind around eternal, right? Because I've sat and listened to some men preach. I can get my mind around eternal. But eternity is a whole other thing. I can understand from this linear point forward. That makes sense but eternity, the always existent state of existence. That's beyond this puny brain to comprehend. So God only talks about it one time in its book of Isaiah. And here's what he says. He says about himself that he's the God that inhabiteth eternity. That didn't help me. That made it more confusing, if I'm be honest. Because now he's talking about a time construct, but now he's saying he lives in it. I had my father-in-law had a Bible teacher one time that explained it this way. He said everything at every moment in every place is in the immediate presence of God. You and I live life on this moving continuum called time. You could almost imagine if we had a big map on the wall and if you were to take like a, a paper towel roll and you were to zero in with your eyeball on one particular road, Wall Ridge Road or Pleasant Ridge Road, and then begin to move. And follow it as you look through it. You would always be on a small portion of that road and moving in a direction. But now imagine if you took the paper towel roll away and stepped back and looked at the map. You see, the paper towel, that's how we experience time. It's a moving continuum. We can't go backwards to what was a second ago. We can't leap forward to what will be. We can only live in the present of here and now. But God, He is not I was or I will be. He is I am. And so as He experiences time, He doesn't experience it on a moving continuum. Now, sometimes He has confined Himself to that reality. For instance, in His incarnation, that He might identify with mankind and minister to mankind. But God Himself, He experiences time as one whole experience. Or one whole event. I don't want to get into the weeds here. But hey, there's a reason. The Bible says this in the book of Hebrew. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, I don't believe that God's a deist. I don't believe he's the great clock winder. I don't believe he set things rolling and then set back. And he's sitting back drinking a cup of coffee, reading a paper up in heaven. But I do believe this, that if he inhabiteth eternity, then the creative work that he did had to be something done in a moment of time. Something that he's able to interact with and experience at any moment because it's not just that he did it and pushed it away like an empty plate at the end of dinner, but he inhabiteth everything. It's not that he abandoned eternity, he inhabiteth eternity. And you say, well, preacher, wh- what are you getting at with all this? I'm saying that whenever he describes him as being able to be present everywhere, at every moment, Matthew's account says this, that he was healed from the self-same hour that this was done. It tells me this, that when he believed in him and his power over distances, he was proclaiming him, whether implicitly or explicitly, to be the creator, to be the one that has mastery over all things. I believe it was superlative in its extent. He believed that Christ has power over distances. But there's another dimension that this man reaches into, and that's that he believed that Christ had power over death. I don't know how sick this old boy was. I know there's another instance of a young lady who is dying in Scripture. And there's it's in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they all three say different things about the shape, the condition that she was in. One says that she was dead already. One says she was dying. Uh, And one says that she was at the point of death. And you say, preacher, which is true? Well, they probably all three were true at any given point. In this instance, in this occasion... All we're simply told is this man was sick and he was grievously tormented and he was dying. But when the centurion sends word, don't you imagine that if this man's grievously tormented and he's dying, there is a real likelihood that before the Lord ever received that word that this man would die. And yet that did not dissuade this man. I don't know and I can't speak for him and I wouldn't dare to, but I would just simply say it seems as though his belief is if he dies between now and when the Lord hears, why well, the Lord will just raise him from the dead. You understand that death is no challenge for a God that's already defeated death. Amen. He entered, like William Muncy once said that he entered into death's domain and he conquered the cruel beast and he took his scepter and he, he took his crown and he broke his scepter and he strapped the beast to his chariot wheels and rode to glory, a victor over death, hell, and the grave he is the victor over death. and this man he believed that christ had enough power that he could undo what other people couldn't undo that he could give life where there was only death he said preacher i don't need to believe that sure you do if you got lost kids you do if you got lost grandkids you do if you got lost loved ones friends family members you do you need a Savior that can speak through the veil of death as He did with Lazarus. He spoke through that stone door, but He didn't just speak through that door. Not just the door of the tomb, but the door of the grave. And His Word spoke into the ears of a dead man. Uh, ears that could not hear and produce life. What an amazing God we have. I think it's superlative in its extent. I think number th- 4, 8, I don't know where we're at. The next one. I think it's superlative in its request. There's two things I like about this man's request. and I'll just mention these and move on. Number one, it was not presumptuous. You know, because of the way the Spirit of God records and details this, you might miss this. But listen to how Matthew records this. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. Now in Luke's account, because the elders are, are sent and are speaking for the man, they say, would you come and heal this man because he loveth our nation and he built us a synagogue. But in Matthew's account, representing the very intentions and words of the centurion himself, it becomes apparent that nowhere does this man ask Jesus to come and heal him. Now, that's important because when you read Luke's account, it'll seem like it don't make a lot of sense. He sends word and says, come to my house and heal my servant. And then whenever the Lord gets there, he meets him in the driveway and says, uh, sorry, Lord, I never wanted you to come here in the first place. That doesn't make a lot of sense. See, the elders of the Jews were the ones that said, he built us a synagogue, you better go heal that servant of his. But when this man makes request, he doesn't ask the Lord to do anything. He just tells him what the problem is. Lord, I want you to this. He doesn't do that. Lord, you better this. He doesn't do that. Lord, I need you to. He doesn't do that. Here's what he says. He says, my servant lieth at home sick, of the palsy grievously tormented. And then he just leaves it there. And he allows the Lord to do with it what the Lord will. You know, the best kind of faith is not a presumptuous faith. There's going to be, I know I've hit on these prosperity preachers a lot tonight. And I just, it's the nature of the message and talking about faith. I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but all these cats are going to have a lot to answer for one day. They're going to come face to face with a God they've been bossing around for a lot of years. Or presuming to do so. And they're going to be shown very quickly that all of their peacocking was not very impressive to God. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be bold in having faith and requesting things from the Lord. And I don't think that the lesson of this man's faith is don't ever ask anything from God. But I do think the lesson is this. Part of the reason his faith was so effective is it didn't presume to declare to God how things should be. It merely just said, Lord, I got a problem. I need your help. And then let God dictate the terms of that miracle. If he had said, come to my house and heal him, and the Lord had had obliged him, there would have been no statement made about the superlative nature of this man's faith. In other words, he got something better because he left it to God. Oh man, you think you got big plans for your life? You'd be amazed what God has in mind. And I will tell you, what a disgrace it is. that times in my life, I've settled for lesser than what God wanted to do and wanted to give because I was so prideful as to demand the criteria of what an answer from God would look like. This man, is faith, it's not presumptuous. Number two, it's not ostentatious. I like how he says it. He says, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I'm not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. This is the point, if this is read in the halls of heaven, that Naaman goes... (laughs) Because this man's attitude is the very opposite of Naaman's in the Old Testament. You remember Naaman, the Syrian captain of the host? Elisha uh, says uh, uh, unto him, says, go and and wash in the water. And he says, well, I thought he'd come out and wave his hand over and and, and make some proclamation and everything. Somebody said, no, that's Creflo Dollar's tent right down there. (laughs) But if you want help, just do as the Lord commanded you. But this man, he's got the opposite perspective. He says, Lord, I don't need a bunch of fuss. Lord, I just need you to work. You'd be amazed how your life will change when what you'll desire is the will of God above anything else. You don't need God to work in a loud way. That's how he needs to work, praise the Lord. But most of the God's work in a person's life is done in small, quiet ways that build a criteria or build a, a bedrock, that, that, that build a foundation of faith in a person's life. Oh, well, he'll do some big things for you. But you'd be amazed how many little things he's doing for you. He'll do some noticeable things for you, but you'll be amazed how many unnoticed things he's doing for you day by day. I'm I'm not preaching on it tonight, but you know, one a, a great theme in the Bible is the unnoticed miracles of Christ. I'll give you one simple example. We all look at the storm on the sea and Christ calming the storm. You remember that when he calmed the storm, and we preach on that, and that's beautiful, and we love it. Did you ever notice that one of the accounts, I believe it's Matthew's account, says that the ship was full of waves, but it did not sink. That's a greater miracle than the calming of the sea. Storms pass all the time. But you tell me how you can take a boat full of water and keep it from sinking. And yet we miss it when we read. And how many times do we miss what God's doing in our life? We're focusing on the big thing we want God to do and we miss the things God is doing day by day. It's superlative in its request, and finally, and I'm done. It's superlative in its effect. (laughs) His faith got the job done. Got the job done. Say what you will about it. Christ was impressed with it. And it changed things. It changed things. What was its effect? Well, notice, number one, its effect on the centurion himself. It did two things. Number one, it made him humble. The Jewish elder said, he's worthy. He says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. When you believe what he believed about Christ, it would be only natural to suggest nobody's worthy. When you believe what the Bible teaches about God, I don't know how you could ever suggest anything you or I could do ever could be worthy of a God like that. And you know what biblical faith does? Biblical faith. I'm talking about biblical faith. You know what it does? It is the ultimate abasing element in a person's life. It is the confession that all things are beyond your means. Even the things that you could maybe hope to manipulate are beyond your wisdom. Even if I could do it, I don't want to because I'd make a mess of it. Even if I could do it, I don't want to because God would do better with it than I would. Faith is the proclamation that all matters of life are beyond your means and ability. It's a humbling thing. It made him humble. Number two, it made him hopeful. He sent words. He believed Christ could and would heal his I don't know what the mood was like in the home, but I would imagine this man in the firm resolve of his faith was not distressed and was not despairing because he knew that God was able to do what he couldn't do. I see the effect it had on the centurion. I see the effect it had on the Savior. It did two things. Number one, it moved him. It moved him, caused him to act, caused him to work, caused him to do something in the situation. Now, I'll go ahead and admit to you, there's, we're getting into depths beyond me, and, and that don't take much, but, but we're getting into depths far beyond me. I don't understand how a God that inhabiteth eternity could ever be moved by anything. But I do understand this, that as we read in our Bible, it appears as though prayer is the means of turning the wheels of God's providence in men's lives, so much so that men's decisions have real meaningful effect. God's not bluffing when He gives you and I free will and choice. I, he, he, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not a Calvinist. As I'm not a lot of things. I'm not a Calvinist, and I don't. I don't believe that uh, that that our uh, free will choice is an illusion. I believe it's a real choice. I believe it's a real choice. But I also recognize there's a God that that reigns over all. Preacher explained that. Ain't my job to. But here's what I do understand. I do understand that there are times when men would reach out in faith to the Lord. You know, there's, in the New Testament, there's, the Lord's passing by a blind, one, blind man one day. And the Bible says he would have gone further. But the man cried out to him and he stopped. The will of the Savior was to go further. But the cry of the blind man ceased God in his steps Amen. and caused him to turn. I can't explain everything about that. But I can understand this that if I'm ever going to move God, it's going to take faith. I understand if I'm ever going to if I'm ever going to see God work in my life, it's going to take faith. Faith it moved him. But not only did it move the savior, it marvelled the savior. He looked at this man's faith, he said, "I've not found so great faith." It's not cuz he didn't know where to look. He knows the contents of every man's heart. And when he said, "I've not found so great faith," he was saying there is no greater faith. I will tell you this, the Lord is a lot more impressed by your faith than he is your efforts. The Lord is a lot more impressed by your faith than he is by your talents. The Lord's a lot more impressed by your faith than he is your good looks. Your wit or your knowledge. Paul said we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up. Charity edify. God's a lot more impressed by your faith. If it is biblical faith, if it is faith of this kind and character, that's the thing that impresses God. That's the thing that pleases God. Hebrews says, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now, I'm not not an English major, but it seems to suggest to me that without faith it's impossible to please Him. It must mean that faith does indeed please Him. You can't do all things well-pleasing in His sight without trusting Him and without having faith in Him. And so I don't know if you're like me. You're probably better than me and more spiritual than me. But me personally, I want to have faith like this man had. And I already, even in the in the reading of the text tonight, identified things in my life where I have to say, Lord, my faith's not what it should be in this. And God, I need your help that my faith might grow, be cultivated, be pure, be more superlative to what it is here heretofore been. Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come play. and wonder if that might be the prayer of your heart this evening. There might be some area of your life in which you're struggling to trust the Lord or to seek Him or to see in Him the answer. If that's true, you say, Preacher, what can I do about that? Well, you can exercise what faith you have. That's what the man did when he said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Lord, there's things I'm struggling with, but with what strength I have, I'll come to you. Uh, Lord, there's things I'm having trouble trusting, but with what faith I have, I'll come to you. And he came to the Lord and God strengthened his faith. And God did the work that he couldn't do. Why don't you come and meet the Lord in the altar? Let him have his will and way tonight. Father, bless this invitation. May it uplift our Savior in Christ's name.